Dr. David Garrison, our fall Missions Festival speaker and the author of two books, Church Planning Movements and A Wind in the House of Islam, has spent uh, two decades studying Islam. He's an amazing guy. In case you didn't know, Dr. Garrison gave completely different examples of global church planning movements in each service of the Fall Missions Festival. He gave three related but different messages. He's discovered so many examples of what God is doing in the world today that he had new stories for each service. That's amazing he could do that. It's amazing how many stories there are of what God's doing to build his church. But it hasn't always been like that, especially in the Muslim world. In David's new book, A Wind in the House of Islam, which is available at our bookstall there, Dr. Garrison writes, in Islam's first 12 centuries, first 12 centuries, we found no voluntary and only a handful of coerced conversions to Christian religion. 12 centuries Nothing. Not until the end of the 19th century, 12 and a half centuries after the death of Muhammad, did we find the first voluntary movements of Muslims to Christ that numbered at least 1,000 baptisms. Then, in the final two decades of the 20th century, he writes, there was a surge of 11 additional movements. By the close of the 20th century, 1,368 years after the death of Muhammad, there had been a total of just 13 movements of Muslim communities to faith in Christ. It's this long history of frustration, a history that has seen tens of millions of Christians absorbed into the Muslim world that makes current events all the more striking. Because in only the first 12 years of the 21st century, an additional 69 movements to Christ of at least 1,000 baptized Muslim background believers or 100 new worshiping fellowships have appeared. These movements are taking place all over what David describes as the House of Islam. These movements are happening in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Persian world, in the Arab world, in Turkestan, in South Asia, and in Southeast Asia. Something is happening. Something historic. Something unprecedented. Twelve centuries, nothing. And now in the last 12 years, something historic. A wind is blowing in the house of Islam. Now to understand what God is doing, not only in the Muslim world today, but in areas of Europe and Asia, and what he can do right here in Wheaton, we need to look back to the original church planting movement, and that's the book of Acts. Now, church planting movement is defined as the rapid multiplication of indigenous churches planting churches, that's churches planting churches, that sweep through a people group or population segment. And that's the book of Acts. The book of Acts is an account of a church planting movement around the Mediterranean Sea. From the east side of the Mediterranean around towards the west, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was proclaimed and churches were established. The original church planting movement. 
20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even opponents of the church said that the world had been turned upside down by the gospel. Newly established churches were being strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. That's what we read in Acts 16.5. How did this happen? How was the world turned upside down with the gospel in just 20 years? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at the first half of Acts, the first 18 chapters, including Paul's first two missionary journeys to see what we can learn. And we're not going to go through at the same pace that Pastor Moody's going through Romans, because we'd be here for seven hours. Uh, We're just going to look at those first 18 chapters. We're going to go pretty fast. So please open your Bible, your Bibles, to the book of Acts as we journey through its pages. Now, the theme of Acts is witness. And if you're taking notes, you want to write that at the top, write that word at the top of your notes, witness, witness. Peter, an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, told the crowds in Acts 2, we read it this morning, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Their witness was unstoppable. Threatened by the authorities not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again, Peter and John famously replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop talking and telling about everything that we have seen and heard. And that's what witness is, an unstoppable desire to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives. God's plan was for their witness to be global. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to start there. And the final words of Christ to his followers. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The rest of Acts follows the progression of this witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the end of the earth. But how did this witness turn the world upside down in just 20 years? How did the church grow so fast? And the seeds of that answer are found in Acts chapter 1. Right from the start, these principles are at work. Church planning movements are works of the Holy Spirit, preceded by prayer, and centered on the gospel. Church planning movements are lay grassroots movements that emphasize discipleship and multiplication. From Acts 1 through 18, from Jerusalem to Greece, these principles drive everything that happens. First principle, the Holy Spirit. The church only grows when the Holy Spirit empowers God's people to courageously proclaim the gospel and then train others to do the same. Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, ends the Gospel of Luke, which he also wrote, with these words from Jesus. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Luke begins Acts with this same emphasis. Look at Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. 
Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then Luke reminds the reader of Jesus' promise, the promise we just read. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is emphatic about the need for the Holy Spirit And Luke makes that point clear. Nothing happens without the Holy Spirit. At another time, Jesus said it like this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Turn to the opening verses of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verses 5 through 9 describe how devout Jews from every nation under heaven heard the disciples proclaiming in their own languages the mighty works of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit, witness begins, and the result is powerful. Look down to verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The results are spectacular to make Jesus' point obvious. The church only grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Craig Ott, in his book, Global Church Planning, writes this, if there's anything that stands out in the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in the book of Acts, it's the dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers, emboldens, bears witness, gives wisdom, guides, encourages, performs miracles, calls and sends workers, and gives joy. Church planning movements are empowered by the Holy Spirit as he works through Spirit-filled church planters and believers. Principle one, the Holy Spirit. Principle two, prayer. In Acts 1, we see another seed of gospel growth, the priority of prayer. What do the apostles do while they wait for the Holy Spirit? Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 14. What do the apostles do while they wait for the Holy Spirit? They devoted themselves to prayer. And then what does the fledgling church do after they receive the Holy Spirit? Acts 2.42, which is a theme verse for us as a church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. The first time Jesus sent the disciples out on mission, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what do he say? Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest, to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. 
now in Acts, commissioned as his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, the disciples devote themselves to earnest prayer, just as Jesus told them to do. And God answers those prayers. In Acts 1, they pray. And as we read, they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, they pray. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In Acts 4, the early church prays. And despite persecution, the church is filled with courage. In Acts 9, Ananias and Paul pray. And Paul, the great missionary and teacher of the early church, is saved. In Acts 10, Peter and Cornelius pray. And the gospel goes to Gentiles for the first time. In Acts 12, the church prays and Peter is miraculously delivered from prison. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch prays and they send Paul on the first missionary trip. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas pray and they're delivered from prison. The jailer and his family are saved and the first church in Europe, the church in Philippi, is established. And by Acts 17, the world is turned upside down with the gospel. Every major advance of the gospel in Acts is preceded by prayer. Every major advance of the gospel in Acts is preceded by prayer. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. You'll see there that Peter and John had just been threatened by the leaders, the leaders who killed Jesus. So this is an intense and it's a credible threat. And they're commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They respond in prayer. They respond in prayer. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They pray. Now look down to verse 29 as they conclude this prayer. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak, uh, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit. Prayer. Third principle, gospel proclamation. Church planning movements like the one described in Acts are works of the Holy Spirit preceded by prayer and centered on the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, and feel free to turn there, Starting in verse 34, Peter described the gospel to Cornelius. We've sung the gospel. We've read the gospel together. This is the heart of everything we're about this morning. And here's how Peter preached that gospel to Cornelius. God does not show favoritism. That's good news. But accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what's right. You know the message God sent to the people, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did. 
They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen by witnesses, by us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. From Peter to John to Paul, the apostles are absolutely and resolutely explicit that Jesus is the center of the message. In Acts 4, Peter explains, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. Doctors David Garrison and Craig Ott, who have researched current and past church planning movements, who I just referred to earlier, have uncovered this principle. All church planning movements throughout history are gospel-centered. The book of Acts describes the spread of Christianity in terms of the word of God being proclaimed, changing lives, and giving birth to the church. The gospel was the center of the apostolic message, and the word of God itself was the primary active agent, not the preacher or the church planter. Church planting movements are gospel-driven. The church will not grow if the gospel is not proclaimed. The church will not grow if the gospel is not proclaimed. There is no church planting movement without clear, bold proclamation of the gospel message in a language the audience understands and that conveys its full and powerful meaning. That's what they found from all their research. That's what the Bible teaches. You know, the most distinctive feature in Acts are the powerful speeches of Peter, Stephen, James, and Paul as they clearly proclaim the gospel. The result, the church grows. Fourth principle, Holy Spirit, prayer, gospel proclamation. Fourth principle, multiplication. We see the seed of another church planting movement principle in the early chapters of Acts, and that's the principle of multiplication. All church planting movements are lay grassroots movements that emphasize discipleship and multiplication. The apostles existed because Jesus invested himself in their lives. And then he entrusted them with the message of the gospel and told them, go and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. You know, although in the early chapters of Acts, it's primarily the 12 apostles who are proclaiming the gospel and being used powerfully by God, in less than one year, in less than one year, new believers who had devoted themselves to understanding and obeying Christ's commands began to emerge as well-respected leaders full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So in Acts 4, we're introduced to Barnabas. In Acts 6, Stephen. In Acts 8, Philip, who's instrumental in the gospel going to Africa. In Acts 9, Ananias and a woman disciple named Tabitha. Turn with me to Acts 13. Acts 13. In Acts 13, we see multiplication happening across racial, ethnic, and social lines. This is just beautiful. 
13.1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called the black man, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, later called Paul. That church commissions Paul and Barnabas for missionary work, and those two invest in John Mark. Then in Acts 15, we're introduced to Judas and Silas, and later to Timothy, Aquila, his wife Priscilla, Apollos, who was mighty in Scripture. Love that. Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, and many others. Luke, the author of Acts, is often by Paul's side as his doctor and traveling companion. You know, a lot of times when we think about discipleship and Paul discipling someone, we think he discipled Timothy. Look at all the people we've just discovered have been discipled. It's disciples making disciples who make disciples. Acts 14 provides a powerful picture of how Paul multiplied himself and others. Look at Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. Flip over there. Acts 14, 21 through 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's Paul and his team, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. How did the church grow? Local leaders were quickly, were quickly trained and empowered to lead the church, and those leaders trained others to do the same. As Paul explained to the church in Ephesus, the responsibility of church leaders is to equip God's people to do his work and build up his church. The gospel spread when ordinary, average, equipped believers understood it was their role to actively proclaim the gospel everywhere they went. The first disciples made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. Tonight, Nathan Beck is going to talk about that four-generation pattern we find in Scripture. This emphasis on discipleship, rapid multiplication, and lay involvement led to the growth of the church. Lastly, the principle of convergence. The church grows when God brings convergence between gospel preparation and gospel presentation. Mary's story is a story of that. A woman God had prepared to hear the gospel that Mary presented. In Acts, we see these two principles at work. God initiates preparing people to respond to the gospel, and God's people proclaim the gospel wherever they go. God prepared devout Jews. We read about that. An Ethiopian eunuch, a murderous Saul. He prepared Cornelius, Lydia, and, a, and huge numbers of people eager for the gospel in city after city. Conversion happens at the convergence of God's initiative and our witness. That's how the disciples work together with God. That's how we, you, can work together with God. The believers proclaimed and explained the gospel everywhere they went, and God changed hearts, giving people faith to believe the gospel they heard and proclaimed. You know, there are a few things more exciting than meeting someone God is prepared to believe the gospel. Has that ever happened in your life? You just met someone God is prepared. It's like, wow, it's awesome. Like what Mary was explaining. 
An ESL teacher working with World Relief at College Church sent us this letter just a couple months ago. Here's what she writes. About two weeks ago, at the tea break for adult immigrants and refugees studying English as a second language here at College Church, an ESL adult, uh, an adult immigrant asked a Wheaton College volunteer if the women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings at College Church is open for everyone. The Wheaton student told her she'd find out and asked how she'd become interested. And this woman said she heard about Jesus for the first time in the Bible story that week, and she wanted to know more about him. Uh, The Bible story is offered once a week during break time, and students are invited to attend if they want. Well, since that time, this immigrant woman has been reading the English Bible that World Relief gave her, along with the full-text Bible in her own language, online. She's up to the fourth chapter of John, which she has underlined and marked up with many words from her language. She has signed up for the women's Bible study on Wednesdays and plans to bring a friend along as well. She's very interested in the Bible, but most specifically in the person of Jesus. She keeps asking, will they explain more about Jesus at the women's Bible study? Yeah, I think they will. (laughs) That's just one story. Mary's is another of God preparing someone's heart for the gospel. It may be that your new neighbor or the colleague working in the cubicle next to you or the mother of one of your child's friends or the client you've known for years is also ready to hear the good news. What stories is God preparing to write through your witness, through your witness. Twenty years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the book of Acts describes a world turned upside down by the gospel. In one lifetime, in one lifetime, the gospel advanced in astounding, impossible ways. In the late 70s, my wife and her family fled Iran. Um, You may or may not know that Becky was raised in Iran. If you've watched the movie Argo, you have a sense for what was happening as the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power and an Islamic theocracy was established there in Iran. The influence of that Iranian revolution rippled all around the world. We felt it years later when we were in Indonesia. Iran was the epicenter for the resurgence of Islam. Yet 30 years later, What's happening? Iranians are coming to faith in Christ by the hundreds of thousands. Iranians are coming to faith in Christ by the hundreds of thousands. Did you know that? The epicenter of Islamic radicalism is becoming the epicenter of redemption. Something's happening. something that has never happened in 13 centuries. So how can we join God in what he's doing, not only in the Muslim world, but in areas of Europe and Asia, and what he could do right here in Wheaton? How can we join him? Here's three ideas. We can pray. Honestly, we need to get serious about prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to work in power to save the nations and friends in our community through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Garrison writes, prayer has been the first and primary strategy for virtually every new initiative into the Muslim world. That's certainly what the Bible teaches. It's what we discovered this morning. Every major advance of the gospel in Acts is preceded by prayer. From what we studied this morning, the need for prayer couldn't be more obvious. God answers prayer. The, the church only grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we want to see the church advance here and around the world? I know we do. This is our desire that the church would advance here. We need to pray. We need to pray. A starting point is what we're asking for all of our small groups, that every person in each small group pray for one unbelieving friend and every group pray for one missionary and their region of the world every time your small group gathers. That every person in each small group pray for one unbelieving friend and every group pray for one missionary and their region of the world every time your small group gathers. So far, we have 900 people in 80 small groups. We hope that'll grow this year. We hope you'll join a small group if you're not in one yet. According to the scripture we've studied this morning, what can we expect the Lord to do if we begin praying for 900 unbelieving friends in 80 regions of the world? According to the scripture that we've read this morning, what can we expect the Lord to do if we begin praying for 900 unbelieving friends and 80 regions of the world. Two, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Acts 8, 4. The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Notice it doesn't say the leaders. It says the believers, the average believer like you and me, who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. They kind of remind me of Hansel and Gretel. Everywhere they went, they shared bits of the gospel, leaving a gospel trail behind. I'm sure they were afraid. That's why they scattered. But they kept talking about Jesus. In his letter to believers in what is now Turkey, Peter reminds the average church member, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I have been saved to be a witness for Christ. Wherever he's placed us, wherever we go, we're to be his witnesses by what we say and do. Just naturally and openly talking about our relationship with God, weaving bits of biblical truth into conversations, showing the gospel's beauty through our kindness and integrity, asking questions like Mary did to discover how Christ can meet the deepest needs of our friends and colleagues. What kind of trail do you leave behind? Can people follow that trail to Jesus? You know, one of the easiest ways to introduce someone to Jesus is to invite them to study the Bible and let God speak for himself through his word. We see this type of witness also described in Acts chapter 8. 
God prepares the Ethiopian eunuch to study the Bible with Philip. And they read the Bible together in a chariot of all places, which just goes to prove you can have a Bible study anywhere. And the eunuch is saved. All of Scripture points to Christ. We can start anywhere with anyone, and we'll get to Jesus. God's Word is powerful. It penetrates our hearts. God has prepared people to respond to the gospel if we'll just walk through Scripture with them. Who's your Ethiopian eunuch? Who's your Ethiopian eunuch? The Holy Spirit would love to lead you to someone that he has prepared to study the Bible with you. Maybe you study it one-on-one with them. Maybe you invite them to join your small group, study with your group. Someone seeking but not understanding who's waiting for you. Will you ask God to lead you to that person? And then will you ask them, you want to study the Bible with me? Imagine what could happen. Be exciting. Third application, invest in others. Each of us is responsible for being discipled and making disciples. Each of us needs to, under, uh, needs to be gradually and consistently growing in our understanding of Christ's teaching and our obedience to him as Lord. A missiologist, Mac Style, says, there is no sanctification through aviation. In other words, getting on a plane to serve on a world impact or a stamp team doesn't miraculously result in the ability to explain the gospel clearly. We need to practice here what we might do there. We need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. You know what would happen if each of us got serious about studying God's word, really knowing it, digging into it, and obeying Christ's commands? The church would grow. This church would grow. Christ's church would grow in ways we could hardly imagine. Well, the book of Acts outlines the church's growth after Pentecost throughout the Mediterranean region. There was numerical growth. There was geographical growth. The church spread from every direction from Jerusalem, and there was growth in spiritual depth and vitality, including a growing diversity in the Christian community. This growth, this church planting movement, was a work of the Holy Spirit, preceded by prayer, centered on the gospel. It was a lay grassroots movement that emphasized discipleship and multiplication, and this is how God continues to build his church today. Friends, nothing could be more exciting than joining him on his mission. Our theme is join in. And as we sing our final song and the worship team come back up on the platform now, you'll notice that the flags in front are bunched together. And they represent our witness. And that witness needs to be taken out of our building to your Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We have a bunch of volunteers who are going to recess some of those flags out But if you feel like God is speaking to you and you're like, I want to be his witness, I want to take that witness out to the world, you're welcome to also come down, get a flag, and walk it out symbolic of your desire to take his witness to the world. Let's stand and sing together. Let the nations be glad.